Well, it's a privilege to be here, and thanks for coming. I'm going to point out that uh, I provided just a, a sheet of paper to write on, so it's in your little packet there. You can can open that up and uh, take notes, uh, draw pictures, um, stick figures, whatever you want. How about if I open an order of prayer? Father, we're so grateful for you that you would uh, allow us to give consideration to the doctrine of vocation, as Mark said. We pray, Lord, that you would guide our thoughts and our hearts now as we consider what your word has to say about this topic, about working in a manner worthy of our calling. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Who works for somebody? Okay, anybody manage anybody else? So we have some managers, we have some employees, so we're, there's a mix of us in here, right? So the question is, does the Bible have anything to say about the workplace? What does it have to say about us reporting to people and us leading other people? That's the question for this morning, and so you'll see on the title of your notes there, the, the title of the message is Working in a Manner Worthy of Your Calling. I would invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and as you're turning there, I'll just give you a brief background of where I came from. In uh, 1987, I graduated from the Master's College with a degree in Bible and Youth Ministry. Uh, so I started seminary the same year, went to the Master's Seminary, and I did about a year's worth of study. And um, when I was there, I was hanging out with guys who worked for FedEx early on in my seminary career, and I thought, what a great place to work. They work 17 hours a week, maybe 17 and a half. They are forbidden from working over 30 hours a week, so that's perfect for a seminary student. So I thought, well, sign me up. They signed me up. I was putting packages on aircraft cans for $8.50 an hour back then. That was a lot of money, and, uh, and I could study. But what happened was, as I realized, there weren't any believers there. And I said, God, can you take me out of seminary and put me in the corporate world? I want to be a part of these lives and introduce people to Christ. And so that's what happened. God took me out about a year later, find myself being promoted at FedEx several times within the first couple of years. Uh, within a year, actually, I was responsible for the entire downtown L.A. market in terms of sales, revenue growth. Uh, did well in that position. It took me a year to figure out what business was. I'd never had a business course in college, so that was crazy that I would pray such a prayer. God put me there. Uh, again, it was like beating my head against the wall for a year, but finally I figured things out, figured out how to make revenue for the company. And the Lord took that experience uh, over a number of years and moved my family to Memphis, Tennessee, where we lived at the world headquarters, right? I mean, literally lived at the world headquarters. And, uh, and the Lord allowed me to teach business courses to executives, advanced supply chain management, systems thinking, uh, uh, supply chain, from global supply chain management, uh, advanced um, negotiations. I thought, this is really crazy. I'm a Bible student. But the Lord is answering my prayer, and things are happening, and I find myself all of a sudden uh, responsible for our Fortune 100 accounts, a designated set of them. My focus was in the high-tech industry. And it was amazing to see how the Lord would move a guy like me forward in a situation like this. It's clearly providence. It's not something I studied for or planned for. It's just street knowledge. It's beating it into, the, into my head. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he saw to it that I would move to Chicago and manage a huge part of our business in Chicago. 
So I have a little bit of background there, and I'm excited about corporate world, but as I was going through that, I wish I'd have known then what I know now as a pastor. What does God's word say about working faithfully in the workplace? So Paul is the man behind the message in Ephesians. He wrote the book, and it's more than just about Paul. It's a portrait of God's grace in Paul's life. I transition that way because I want to understand what does God's word say about the workplace. We're going to focus most of our time on Ephesians chapter 6, but I just want to talk about Paul for a second. You see, Saul, as he was known before he was a believer, confessed in Acts 26.9 that he had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus. He was a persecutor of the church. He breathed threats and murder against the Lord's disciples in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Years later, he wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, the very book we're looking at here, he wrote that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the purpose, that we would walk in them. So traveling to Damascus, he's a trespasser, he's a dead man, he's a child of wrath in Ephesians chapter 2. Yet, Jesus chooses him to bear his name to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to the sons of Israel, to the kings of the world. Why would he choose such a guy? Jesus is the target of Saul's wickedness. Still, God chooses him from before the foundation of the world that he would be holy and blameless before him. Why would God do that? As a redeemed sinner, he understood God's call in his life. And you know what? So should we, right? We should understand God's call on our life and our place of vocation. He writes to faithful saints. He's writing to believers in chapter 1, verse 1. He's writing to Christians who are in a tough world. He's writing to people that he says are chosen, who are predestined, who are uh, sealed by the Holy Spirit, redeemed by the blood of Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, if you haven't already. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we read these words. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, literally, I am begging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That word walk, we could just say behave or act like. We could change the word to work. Work in a manner worthy of your calling. It's an action word that he uses time and again throughout this book. Chapters 1 through 3 describe who we are in Christ. It tells us who we are as believers, but we don't get to how to act as believers until chapter 4 through 6. Chapter 5, verse 1, would you turn there with me as we take a look at the directions he gives us here. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, but immorality or impurity or greed. Focus on that word greed. Greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse gesturing which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
We must be imitators of Christ in the workplace. That's the message that he, he has for us here. And so that brings us, as we forward our way to chapter 6, I want you to focus on chapter 5, verse 15. He gives this treatise, and he says this. He says in verse 15, Therefore, for this reason, be careful how you walk, be careful how you behave, be careful how you work, not as unwise men, but as wise. Here's the reason, making most of the time, for your days are evil. I love this, verse 17. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I read that and I think to myself, what's the implication? If I don't know God's will in the workplace, I'm a fool. That's what he's telling me here. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then he launches into an entire message of husbands, how to treat your wife, wife, how to treat your husband, parents, how to treat your children, children, how to treat your families or your parents. And then we come to the work environment. He addresses the work environment in chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, which is the main topic of our text this morning. This morning we're looking at what it means to labor in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. More specifically, here's what you need to understand as faithful saints in the workplace. Let me get get our... okay. Working in a manner worthy of our calling. Let me just read the text and then we'll drill into it to see what the Lord has to say here. Uh, Verse 5, he says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your master according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and in sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. 2,000 years ago, when this letter was written, Slavery was alive and well in the ancient Near East. We must keep in mind that Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, provides the death penalty for stealing a man or having a stolen man in your possession. Slavery is just something that Paul identifies here as something that was happening in the world in that day and age. He, he doesn't give us a theology of slavery here. He simply recognizes that in the In that world, that one-third of the Mediterranean environment uh, were slaves and masters. They were the slaves were doctors, they were lawyers, they were business people, they were foreign prisoners of war, craftsmen, they were farmers. In that world, the ox was no different than the man, except for one difference: the ox couldn't speak. Yet each one of them, the man and the ox, could be sold or divested of or purchased for any reason or no reason at all. And that's the environment where the Christians were. Paul is writing to people just like us who lived in this environment, and they were asking the question, how do I serve God in my workplace, whether I'm a master or I'm a slave? And so we are neither slaves nor masters in our day and age. Don't insert the American mindset of slave and master in this text and think that that's what it was like back then. 
We're not slaves, we're not masters, but we are Christians who live here in a world where we're in a world where we're responsible to work, we're responsible to lead and guide others. Paul tells us that he's a slave of God. As such, he knows something about slavery. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not slaves, nor are we masters, but we do have people that we work for, and we have people that work for us. As believers, like Paul, we're God's slaves. We are slaves of him alone. But again, what does the Bible have to say about work in the corporate world? You see, believers are called, it's right there on your notes, believers are called to work in a manner worthy of their calling as if laboring for Jesus himself and faithful saints are called to lead as if managing Jesus himself. That's the point I want to get across. Now, I, I want you to realize something here. We're talking about a dangerous message. We're talking about mixing our faith in the workplace. People say you never talk about faith in the workplace and you never talk about politics in the workplace. But today's a dangerous message, right? We're talking about how to live and survive in the corporate world, in the business world, or in any other world, education, whatever it may be. When you speak up about your faith, dangerous things can happen. And so I want to recognize that right up front. I know of a guy who simply answered some questions in the workplace, whether over a meal or, or outside of work environment, and he ended up losing his position as a result of just being faithful in the workplace. So what are we talking about here? I want to show, really, four actions. It's in your notes there. Four actions of working in a manner worthy of your calling. Four actions. Believers must follow instructions at work. Believers must do God's will from the heart. We see that in verse 6. Believers must recognize that whatever good work or good thing they do will be rewarded by the Lord. And we see that in verse 8. And in verse 9, believers must recognize that they need to manage as if managing Jesus himself. That's the message for today if we were to just break it down. So let's deal with them one by one. Believers must follow instructions in verses 5 and 6. We see that Paul directly addresses the slaves... And he issues them a direct command. Do you see it there in verse 6? He says, obey your masters. The word obey there could also be the word listen. Listen to your bosses. That's what he's saying to them. You've probably heard that what, whatever interests my boss, what? Finish the sentence for me if you know it. Whatever interests my boss, fast, I'm sorry? Fascinates me. Yeah, whatever interests my boss fascinates me. So if your boss tells you something he's interested about, you ought to be fascinated about it. Listen to your boss, whether it's a he or a she. Having worked for a Fortune 100 for 20 years, I'm no stranger to receiving instructions. Usually they came in a form of a letter of expectations, and it was a yearly ritual that we went through, and I gave the same letter of instructions to my direct reports when I had them. Usually the document contained... Usually about 10 critical indices about how to recognize the success that I would bring to the company, the, 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 role, the, the, the desire that they had for me in my position. You would know the drill. It's revenue attainment versus goal. It would be profit, well, uh, positive profit margins versus negative profit margins, of course. Customer service, customer satisfaction, leadership, several other indices. We don't have to go to them all. But what's important 
is that we recognized that FedEx, what was most important for the company, they had, I love their philosophy of business. They broke it down into three letters, PSP. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, people, you take care of your people, you treat them well, they'll provide a great service, and if they provide a great service, your customers are going to pay for it, and you'll make a profit so you can take care of your people and keep the cycle going. Uh, this was pounded into our heads. Even handlers of packages knew PSP. And they knew where they fit into it. And they knew that they had expectations to fulfill. FedEx was always at the top of the charts of one of the best places to work in the world. And it was with great fear and great trembling that I followed these instructions, that I obeyed them. Uh, and, I, and I expected my direct reports to obey them, to listen to them and to follow them. And to disobey would mean discipline, up to and including termination, as it should, right? So right here, we see that Paul gives us three critical indices, three critical indices for obedience to our bosses. The first of the three critical indices is really from a negative perspective in verse 5. You should see it there. He says to obey with fear and trembling. And this is an ongoing action, the structure of the sentence here. Employees, this is something that Paul commands us to do continuously. Notice that Paul doesn't instruct the employers to scare their employees to death. He's not talking to the employers here. He's talking to the employees. Such a scaring them to death would really uh, go against the whole tide of verse 9 to begin with. The same word for fear, you would know it as phobos or phobia. It's used of people fearing God. This is the kind of fear that that demonstrates really a, a, a reverential fear or respect for the one you work for. It's the idea of the fear that one would have for the Lord himself. Phobia, fear, is used uh, with another word in verse 5. It's the word trembling. The word trembling. If you look at that word trembling, you think about this, uh, it only appears five times in the New Testament, and four of those occurrences, it appears with the word fear. So it's fear and trembling. They, They go together. Here's an example of fear and trembling used in the same context. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, uh, Paul writes these words. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, that is, listened, not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. They, They go together. It's in the same context. Paul tells us that the kind of thinking that we should have at this point, as you follow your boss's instruction, it's really that of respect. As a believer, our bosses need to know that we respect them, not backbiting behind them and not getting in on the gossip. This kind of respect is demonstrated with the, what we see in the text here is with a sincere heart, a void of really sinful motivations. Uh, now there's a second of the three critical indices he gives us in verse 5. He says, you're commanded to obey with a sincere heart. Look at verse 5 again. Uh, when you look at the word sincere, I want you to think integrity. Uh, it, it's, it's literally acting without a hidden agenda. Uh, don't pretend that you're laboring when you're really loitering. Right? It, it's, it's a respect. There's an example that we have of this in Colossians 3.17. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 3.17. He says, uh, and whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
So everything that you do in the office, everything you do in the office or out of the office for your employer is really for God's glory. It's for his glory. Now there's a third critical indice here. Third index. You're commanded to obey without sinful motives in verse 6. Look at the word eye service. It's literally, in the Greek language, it would be the word for eye and the word for slave. Don't be an eye slave. That's what he says here. Don't be an eye slave. Its motivation is to appear to be working uh, only when the boss is looking. Right? Don't be an eye slave. Sinful motives are following the directions by eye service as men pleasers. Don't be a, uh, a slave to the watchful eye of other people. That's the, the, the concept that Paul is bringing here. And the word eye slavery or eye service, it's not used in any other ancient uh, Greek language anywhere else except for in Colossians 3.22. He uses the same word. So he invents the word. We've all heard the statement, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And at work, if you just look around, you can see that there are mice who are playing when the cat's not around. So we would say as believers, don't be the mouse who's playing when the cat's away. When you work at home, how many of you work at home? Just a few. Labor harder than when you're in the office. Right? I mean, don't be a slave to somebody's eyeballs. Labor as if you're laboring as to Christ. I have a note here. Don't call in sick when you're not sick. Don't do that. Let me tell you about the worst day off I ever had. I, um, I used to compete in water skiing out in Southern California, and I loved to ski. Well, I got a call from a friend in a late April. It, it was just starting to warm up outside. The water was still a little bit cold, but it was worth getting in. So he says, look, let's go skiing tomorrow. I said, look, it's Friday tomorrow. i got to work. Call in sick. Yeah, call in sick. I mean, after all, I've, I've earned it. I work hard. So I called in sick, went out skiing, and, um, and I didn't stretch well enough the night before or even the day of. And I looked down the rope, and I could see a little loop in the rope, and I was just coming out of a, a turn on my ski, and I realized this is not going to end well. The rope gathered up its slack, sprung me forward, over my ski I went, and hurt my back really bad. Now I had a reason to be sick. And I had to explain how I hurt my back so bad on, uh, on Monday when I had a hard time getting into work when the excuse on Friday was that I was sick, not injured. I will never call in sick again. I, I think the Lord's providence was in that. That was my worst day off ever. So there's a second action item that we need to be cognizant of and working in a manner worthy of our calling, and it's this. Believers must do God's will from the heart. And that's verse 6. Believers must do God's will from the heart. If you recall Ephesians 5.17, Paul said, Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If you don't know God's will at work, you're a fool. And so he says here, uh, to um, the idea is here that believers must do God's work from the heart. Literally, the word heart means soul in verse 6. So Paul gives you two mindsets, really, one positive, the other negative. The first mindset is, it's there in the text in verse 7, 
It's literally serving or slaving as unto the Lord. No matter what we do in life, our service must be from goodwill. That's what he wants us to know here. From goodwill as unto the Lord. We need to be remembering when, when things are falling apart in the office, when, when the boss is a tyrant or unbearable, we, we need to remember this verse. We are slaving, we are serving as to the Lord with a good conscience, mind you. With a good conscience. The second mindset for doing God's will comes from a negative perspective in verse 7. Three words, not to men. Ladies and gentlemen, especially younger ones in here, we need to really be uh, cognizant of this. There are times in our career that our bosses are going to want us to disobey God. They're going to want us to disobey God. And you can remember best, the way I look at this is in my own career, my own experience, there's, I nailed this down to two N's and a C, and it comes in the way of numbers, nightclubs, and censorship. Those are going to be the areas that we're going to be tested in our careers to disobey the Lord. Numbers, nightclubs, and censorship are your threats and your temptation. Numbers, you know the drill, sales projections, right? You, you tell the company, I think we're going to bring in X amount of dollars, and so operations and the whole supply chain orders what needs to be ordered, and they produce what you say you're going to sell, and all of a sudden you're off 50%, and the company's in big trouble. Don't misproject your numbers. Profitability, quarterly reports, annual reports. You can write up all you want, but the numbers don't lie and don't make the numbers lie. Scriptures has a, scripture has a lot to say about numbers. I'm just going to give you one example. Proverbs 20, verse 10. Uh, the, pro, the, the author says, Differing weights and differing measures, both of them are abominable to the Lord. Do not represent numbers in the marketplace. Don't do it. Uh, do your numbers reflect the truth? More importantly, do your numbers, as a slave of Christ, do they honor Christ? Do they honor the Lord? I, I had a lunch two days ago with a well-known pastor in Dallas, and he was telling me about how his brother was a well-known uh, chief operations officer and also, before that, a chief financial officer. And he refused to misrepresent some numbers, and it eventually, over a short period of time, cost him his career. Maybe not his career, but his job at that company. He would refuse, as a believer in Christ, to misrepresent those numbers. Wall Street is willing to make you very rich, isn't it? If you're willing to fudge on some numbers, your, 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 your management team likely will give you some serious bonuses that you can purchase great things with. But you know what? God does not have a ticker symbol. God does not have a bonus tied to him when you misrepresent who he is. Never falsify numbers, even if it means you're going to get fired. Serve as though you're serving the Lord in verse 7. Here's the second end, nightclubs. I love this. I had the opportunity to travel many cities in the world. And, and I... I was always nervous about where the customer would want to go or where my peers would want to go. And so these ideas of places where to go get a meal or where to go get drinks or whatever. And so I just lived by this question, and I, and I loved it, because the answer to the question was always written all over their face. I would say this, would you take your wife and your 13-year-old daughter there? And if I got a great facial response, yes, I would, well, then I'm going. But if, if the first facial response was, are you crazy? 
I picked up my cell phone and called a taxi. I said, take me back to my hotel. I'm not going to join you. That's not easy because if you have a customer willing to spend millions of dollars that wants to go to a place that you wouldn't take your wife or your daughter, you need to make a decision. Is it worth losing this sale? Is it worth losing uh, notoriety in my company? Nightclubs. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 through 28, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust after her in his heart has committed adultery. All right, so we've seen the two ends. Now for the C, censorship. Your primary function in your job is what? Is to, is to meet your critical indices, is to meet your corporate and your departmental goals, right? You're not hired in the workplace to be an evangelist. Don't evangelize on the corporate clock. However, however, people are watching you. They're looking at you. And they see that you're going through the same issues in the company that they're going through. You have the same boss who is a tyrant in the workplace that they have. How do you cope with it? They're going to ask you questions. They want to know. When you behave in a manner consistent with your calling, they want to know what makes you tick. When you work for Jesus, they want to know how you manage the stress levels in your life. And I want to encourage you here. When this happens, when they ask you how you manage this, you have been invited into a conversation to share your faith with them. They have invited you to go there. Remember, 1 Peter 3.15 says to be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. I said at the beginning of this message to remember also that this is a dangerous message. At this point in time, they have engaged your faith. They have engaged a biblical question. When they ask these questions, jot it down. Note the day. Note the time of day. Keep it in a safe place. Note the name of the person. Because trust me, there's going to be a time when you will be called account for your questions and your answers. And you're going to have to prove that this conversation took place at the invitation of your accuser. Am I overreacting? First Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, 2.12, I'm sorry. Indeed, all those who desire to be godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you desire to be godly in the workplace, guess what? There's a guarantee that you're going to be persecuted in the workplace. My church... Emmanuel Baptist Church, we are only maybe 10 minutes from Texas A&M University, and we have several PhDs that go to our church that teach at the university. If they answer a question, uh, do you believe that the world was created in six, literal, 24-hour days? They answer that question, what happens? Or they answer any other question, scientific question, what happens? Anybody ever heard of Dr. Jerry Bergman? You need to get these two books if you have a fascination with this persecution in the workplace. It's called Slaughter of the Dissidents, Killing the Careers of Darwin Doubters. He has several PhDs in the scientific world. And in this, these two books, he notes story after story, real stories where people were denied their PhDs, were denied entrance into schools, were, were denied promotions, were denied tenure, were denied big awards, like Dr. Ray Damadian, who was denied the Nobel Prize prize because he was a believer. Do you know Dr. Ray Damadian? Maybe you've benefited from him. Maybe somebody in your family has. He invented the MRI. But because he believes in God's account of creation, he was denied the Nobel Prize. And so Dr. Jerry Bergman writes about that. 
Many have been fired simply for not embracing Darwin's faith. Are you doing God's will from the heart? Literally, from the soul, if yes, just accept the fact that you'll be called to task for it, and you'll be threatened and otherwise discriminated against. So here's what we've seen so far. Follow instructions. Uh, We've seen that uh, believers uh, have to do God's will from the depths of their soul, and now there's a third one here. Third one. Believers must recognize their good work will be rewarded by the Lord, and that's in verse 8. Verse 8. Knowing that whatever good thing one, each one does, this he'll receive back from the Lord. That word knowing there is a fascinating word. So there's a little more there than you might think. It's really indicating something that you've known all along and you continue knowing that the Lord will, uh, will uh, recompense you for what you've done. Uh, another way to think of this word is simply to recognize. In other words, you've recognized all along that whatever good and obedient thing that you do in the future, you'll receive back from the Lord. The words receive back in verse 8 also means recompensed or compensated. Colossians 3, Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, Paul applies the word recompense and receiving back in the same context. Here's what he says. Whatever you do, do your work. I love it. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Here it is. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive back, think recompensed, you'll receive back the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. This is a variable compensation package, ladies and gentlemen. Even if you're called to task, even if you're not lying on your numbers, this is a variable compensation package that the Lord says he will repay. This is not a prosperity gospel message. This is a fact that God puts in Scripture. Now think about this. Imagine if we were to think about verses 5 through 8, imagine the slave owner's delight. As they're thinking about what Paul has written, they're hearing this read in their ears. Maybe the slaves are there. They're hearing these slaves have to obey their masters. They can't complain. They have to serve them as if serving Christ himself. You can see the grin on their face, and the slaves are thinking, oh my goodness. Well, we would say not so fast, slave owners, not so fast, bosses, because we have to consider this in context. Consider it in context. The fourth action item to working in a manner worthy of your calling is in verse 9. Believers must lead as if managing Jesus himself. We see it in verse 9. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. He doesn't care you're the boss. Paul tells bosses to do the same things. Think about it. What did he just tell the slaves to do? You can see the masters as they hear what he says. This statement really shocks the senses of any self-respecting master. What on earth does Paul mean? Is, is Paul telling the masters, the bosses, to obey their slaves? Their direct reports? Are masters really supposed to become the slaves of their slaves? He says, do the same thing. Is that what he's saying? Are our bosses really expected to take their marching orders from their direct reports with fear and trembling? Paul, come on. Do you, is this what you mean? The last time we saw that word do is in verse 6. How were slaves told to obey? They were told to do this. Number one, do the will of God from the heart. Number two, continue serving as if you're serving the Lord himself, not men. 
Number three, recognize that whatever good things you do, these things you'll receive back from the Lord. So Paul tells the masters, the bosses, to do the same things. So, what are the same things? Come on, Paul. Well, in addition to obeying their master in heaven, bosses are to do this. They're to do the will of God from the heart. They are to continue serving as to the Lord and not to men. And third, keep recognizing that whatever good thing they do, they'll receive back from the Lord. But Paul, he gives these bosses, he gives them two additional leadership principles here. Right there in verse 9, you can see it. Here's the two leadership principles you need to keep in mind uh, as you lead in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Number, number one, believers mustn't threaten their employees. Don't threaten them. Believers must recognize that their master shows no partiality to them or favoritism. Verse 9, and masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. And that word threaten, you would think it would be in the New Testament more times. It only shows up three times, once here and another place. The word threaten, Paul knows this word well. In Acts 9.1, we hear the word threaten. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and the high priest went to the high priest asking for letters to deport them from Damascus back to Jerusalem. The word threat there is used in the same context as the word murder. So whether we threaten our employees with psychological threats or physical threats, Paul's saying don't do it. Don't threaten your employees. Now, holding them accountable is a far cry from threatening them. If you're concerned, leaders, if you're concerned about work performance, remember what you learned in Management 101, right? Do they have a skill problem or do they have a will problem? A skill problem or a will problem. If you're managing properly, your employees should know on at least a quarterly basis how they're doing. Communicate with them. Tell them how they can improve. If they need training, give them training. Leading them with the carrot versus the stick is a great way to go. But let's face it, there's times when employees, because it's a will issue, they don't want to do what you are asking them to do or leading them to do. And there comes a time when employees must be terminated because they refuse. But this shouldn't be as a result of them not meeting crystal clear objectives that you've discussed with them well beforehand. There should never be a shock. If they're not performing after sitting down with them on a quarterly basis over a period of time, they really shouldn't be surprised that they've been fired. And in reality, they fired themselves. We shouldn't hold back from holding people accountable. Bosses, are you leading in a manner worthy of your calling? Are you withholding raises or promotions or recognition when your company has the wherewithal to provide these things to your employees? Or are you just trying to tick up the numbers in a better way so that your investors look at your numbers? No, take care of your employees. People service profit was such a great idea. Here's an example of a leading of leading in a manner worthy of recalling. Everybody's probably heard of Hobby Lobby, right? Arts and crafts store. Did you know that the CEO there has arranged it so that his employees are paid at least twice, almost twice the amount of the national minimum wage? 
He is leading in a manner worthy of his calling. There's a second leadership principle you need to understand here. As you lead in a manner worthy of your calling, it's in verse 9, you can see it there. Believers must recognize that their master, that's Jesus, he shows no partiality. The word knowing, that he shows no partiality in verse 9, is the same as in verse 8. Remember, this word knowing is something that you've known all along. He says, give up threatening your employees because you've recognized all along that both their master and yours is in heaven, and he has no partiality. He's not partial to you because you're the boss. Just because you're the boss. Now, I said at the very beginning that this was a dangerous message, and I mentioned that I knew a guy who just simply answered some questions in the workplace about some things that people asked him about Scripture. And I want to tell you that guy was me. I was simply asked questions uh, from somebody who presented themselves as a believer, and they wanted to know what Scripture said about certain topics, and certain topics this individual probably disagreed with. But over a period of time, this individual decided that she'd call in sick one day and file a complaint against the company, naming me as her religious aggressor, when all I'd done was answer some questions about what the Bible says. And remember when I said, write down times, write down names, write down the things that were asked and the way you answered them. Well, there was a two-month investigation. Uh, I preached something very similar to this at FedEx twice with corporate executives present. We went through this text. So they know exactly what I believed. But there was a two-month investigation, and the my manager at the time, responsible for about $2 billion of revenue, said, congratulations, I've only been your boss for a couple of months. Um, you've been a stellar employee. Those are her words, not mine. And she said, uh, the, the investigation came back, and we've determined that you've done nothing wrong. Well, I'd known that all along because I simply answered questions. I didn't jump up on a soapbox and preach the gospel in a corporate setting. And then she slid a paper across the table that I was to sign. And in this letter, it says, you've admitted to talking about your faith in the workplace. And the letter said, even though other people asked you questions about your faith, I'll never forget these words, you must cease having these conversations. What, what would you do? You're 20 years into your career. You've had a stellar career. The marks I had on my reviews, my review just before that one, two reviews before that one, was that I exceeded expectations in seven out of seven categories. Yet, over a period of four months, I became somebody who excels in every category to the worst thing walking the planet was demoted 18 years in my career, four months later. How do you face your wife and your kids? How do you explain to your high school kids who are on their way to college that dad has lost his position? This is a dangerous message. This is real. You have house payments. Our cars, thankfully, were paid off. No debt, no credit cards. But I had to take issue with the company. We searched high and low for case law. Was there any case like this ever in U.S. history? And we couldn't find one. 
I talked to an attorney. He said, you have to write a letter of accommodation. You have to ask your employer when you can answer questions and in what locations. I sent that letter via email. I hand-delivered it. And as soon as I sent it via email, my hand on the mouse, I click it, send. I'm done. I know I'm done. And like I said, about four months later, the walls came crashing down. I ended up having to leave the company voluntarily. But then I explained the situation to another believer who was an attorney, and she says, you have to take this to court. And I realized that there would be others like myself who would go through this. I realized there were college kids going through the university, and they were studying how to go into business, and how would they face something like this? And I saw those future kids in my mind. There was no case law precedence. Mine was the first case like this in the U.S. So it was the state of Illinois. We took it to the state of Illinois, and they passed it on to, this, on to the federal court system. And there were things in my case that were dismissed, but it came down to the point where uh, the judge granted a hearing in front of a jury. I never wanted to make this a huge, big deal. I just wanted some case law precedents that other believers could point to. It's Weathers v. FedEx. You can read about it on Alliance Defending Freedom. They have a uh, press release on it, the disposition of the case. And what it came out to was that the judge said that they closed my mouth from talking about something that was important to me. I wrote in my letter of accommodation, when does the company allow me and other people of faith to answer sincerely Sincere questions? And they refused to acknowledge that presence of that letter until depositions. That was a federal crime. So we settled out of court. It was never for money. I mean, we lost way more money than we ever were granted. But it allowed people in the workplace to have something to appeal to. My case is nothing compared to what believers are going through now. And we need to pray for our fellow workers who are believers that they would stand strong, that they would not be censored in the workplace when people want to know about our faith. That's today's message. It's are you leading as if you're leading Jesus? Are you working in such a way that you're working for Jesus himself? Are you pleasing Christ? What a blessing that I would be able to finish my career, finish seminary, and be a pastor. God's providence is alive and well. I'm living testimony. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time that you've given us to represent you in the workplace. I thank you for each one here, Lord, that we can serve you and we can trust in you. We can, we can trust in your providence that you will never let us go. You will never leave us or forsake us. We don't have to cheat on the numbers. We don't have to go to nightclubs. We don't have to be censored. We can serve in the workplace as if serving you, our Savior. And you will reward us, Lord. And I thank you for how you've rewarded even somebody as lowly as me. Lord, would you... Would you show yourself faithful to the men and women who are engaged in the marketplace that they would be strong for your glory. And we thank you for these things in Christ's name.
Amen.